Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Over the past 10 years, Daryl has spent his professional energy honing skills relevant to increasing financial stability and operational efficiency in a number of industries. From startups to Fortune 500 companies, Daryl brings a wide variety of knowledge about the positive and negative of each side of the spectrum. His experience includes helping to pilot a new clinical technology capable for a top 10 pharmaceutical company. While there, Daryl has helped increase the adoption rate of the program from approximately 25% of phase two and phase three trials to over 75% in just three years. Most recently, Daryl has helped his current company, Full Scale, achieve rapid growth of over 80% from 2018 to 2019, including 17 straight months of revenue growth. He played an integral part in creating rapid employee growth, currently over 190 employees worldwide, while implementing and maintaining a culture needed to succeed. At Full Scale, Approaches to as the second anniversary, Daryl continues to push the employees and company towards efficiency and productivity. So, Daryl, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Great to be here, Cameron. Yeah, tell us some um, just before we dive in. What exactly is Full Scale, and and what are you guys focusing on as a company today? Yeah, so Full Scale currently employs about 185 developers, QA, and project managers in Cebu City, Philippines, which is the second largest city in the Philippines. There's about a 3 million person population, and one of their big kind of expertise exports is technology, software development. They have a a really great school system and uh, put a lot of emphasis on their education in those sectors. Uh, So we hook them up with uh, mainly U.S. clients that need software development help. So where we differ from a lot of just normal dev shops, uh, the standard is you do a project bid, you do a project, you go on about your way. We're more of a staff augmentation company where those are full-time resources built out on a fixed monthly rate and they're yours to manage however you want. So we kind of remove some of the layers of management, put you directly with the talent that you need to find, which is hard to find currently, and let you go from there. Try to make it as easy as possible. So like a full outsourced IT shop then? Pretty or much, yep. complementary IT shop. Exactly. So yeah, I, w- I would say complementary is the best way to put it because one of the things that we've really learned as we've kind of – Uh, grown and gotten into something that we didn't really plan on getting in as this stuff usually goes is that the complimentary works really well for our clients. Uh, Often our best clients aren't people that fully offshore their development and that's not what we're always looking to do. If they have a current IT department and they run things well and they have a current development staff, we work really well as a partner with that. So you can kind of bring down your average cost of developers and mix them in with a blended team that one improves efficiency because you're now working on a 12 hour time difference. So you kind of have around the clock productivity as well as you can kind of get that dollar cost average of your software development team down. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. What's the cost difference between, you know, outsourcing through a group like you to maybe hiring based in, you know, average city USA? So it, it depends on average city USA on what we're calling average city. Obviously the coasts are extremely expensive. And if, if you're going to, to hire locally and fully employ the developer, it's essentially 
very difficult for our clientele to compete. So on the coasts, obviously you've got Apple, Google, they swallow up talent so fast that they're, I think the, the studies are very hard to tell because some people just give up posting eventually. But last we saw there were about 375,000 open jobs in the software development field. So that's 375,000 jobs that just can't even be filled because there's not enough talent. Yeah, we didn't do a good enough job. I know we've got STEM going right now, but STEM is such a long-term program to kind of put the education focus in those areas. We're just lagging behind. So there's a ton of jobs that are open. People have just given up and stopped looking. So the job postings have slowed from that standpoint. And then if you do find someone, by the time you hire them, train them, and they're worthwhile at what they're doing, they're eligible for a better job on a coast that pays way more. So we do a lot with kind of the middle of the country and smaller and mid-sized businesses that just can't compete with the bigger companies that can really throw the money around. So to fully answer your question, if you're going to hire someone, uh, the, the price is a fifth of what it could cost to fully hire someone locally that's a senior dev. If you're going to go to a project shop, it all just depends on the project. It is so rapidly different based off the skill set, the the type of platform or product that you're trying to build. It, I mean, it can vary all over the place. So that's one thing that a lot of people don't like about the product is with any product, you don't fully know what you're getting into. You scope mm. it out as well as you can, but as you start to build, you build, and then the product owner has a change in direction. There's a pivot. Ultimately, they, it's not going to be done on the original timeline and under the budget as often as we would like it to be. So that's where we have a flat monthly building that says a flat monthly billing that says this is your resource. Use them however you like. Pivot if you want. Do whatever you want with them. We have some management in place to make sure that kind of uh, fail safes are in place and that we're getting the proper communication back and forth with the client. Uh, but from that standpoint, it, it's really difficult just based on the project. So, so every expertise is going to have a different cost to it. But generally, I mean, we're easily three to four times uh, less expensive and we handle all the stuff that nobody wants to handle with the recruiting and the assessing of the developers. So, so is your restrainer for growth then the, the actual talent, the people over in the Philippines to do the work? It is. And funny, uh, I know we kind of talked about this on our, our, intro call, but the uh, COVID-19 is rapidly changing the landscape of this. So one of the other things that's interesting dealing with a little bit more of an underdeveloped country is office space. So that was one of our big restrictors is the way the international office space works. It is very, very capital intensive. It takes a lot of cash to get a big office worthwhile up and going. It's also given to you in a warm shell where you have to fully construct the office. So there's more capital required to complete the construction. So our biggest growth restrainers were physical talent to match up with clients and then the ability to house those employees. However, that's obviously rapidly changing in the current environment. Hmm. Uh, do any of your employees work from home then as well, or are most of them working from physical space? Or are you, you kind of adapting to that then as well? Yeah. So pre COVID-19, we had a physical space. Uh, it was part of kind of the culture commitment that we really had was to get a lot of young, bright minds and experts in the same room with each other interacting. That, that conversation is kind of invaluable a little bit. And mm -hmm. that's have to work really hard to make sure we don't lose as we kind of go towards a more remote workspace over the past few months. That's one of the things we're really putting a lot of emphasis on is so we don't lose that transfer of knowledge, that interaction about like, how oh, I'm really stuck on this problem. Do you have any ideas? Just being able to walk across the hallway, that's, that's pretty invaluable. So uh, we're moving towards a more remote 
uh, workforce. So the one thing that we have going for us in, in that regard is that we work with a number of different clients and we don't typically operate on a daily basis, getting into the daily operations to really know what they're doing on a daily basis. So they're a little bit independent in that regard. They kind of have their small client teams and it's just trying to continue to push the, the team meetings to make sure that that communication is flowing for the project. Uh, but so far we've, we've seen great success with the remote workforce, which is interesting for our future growth. Are you looking outside? I spent some time over in the Philippines years ago, about 10 years ago, and, and liked it, loved the culture. The people were amazing and so completely loyal and loving working with North American companies as well. And, and then English is really their first language over there for the most part. I mean, they go to school in English and you don't even really hear often even accents with, with a lot of them. Are, um, are you looking outside of the Philippines at all? Are you looking into any countries like Bulgaria or anything in Eastern Europe? Or, um, yeah. It's a great question. So we had originally explored Belarus. Mm. So we had kind of went the Eastern European route. Uh, a couple of the challenges that we found, we ultimately decided not to open up the shop there. So uh, there's, you, you kind of referenced some really good points about why we love the Philippines. One, there's enough people there to support it. Like I said, Cebu City's 3 million people that hasn't even touched Manila and uh, the other areas that are kind of up and coming around Manila. So there's uh, more than enough talent to, to sustain our current growth pattern for quite a few years. Belarus was interesting. We had uh, some trusted employees that had kind of worked on some projects with our one of our CEOs and co-founder for a while. So we had a little bit of a trust circle there, spent some time over there, got some buildings up and going, decided we were going to open the office, did a complete feasibility study. It all, it all matched and their market took a massive shift in a hurry to where their developers became quite a bit pricier and it, it kind of removed the value that we could bring from that standpoint. We would have to contract them out at such a high rate that you're starting to get into U.S. pricing. So Eastern European, Eastern Europe is kind of blowing yeah. up in that regard. So we, we looked at that and decided it wasn't the best uh, option for our current growth that we could kind of sustain the growth where we were a little bit better right now and it was kind of what we know. So we kind of just played to our strength, our growth pattern. Makes sense. How many employees have you got in North America then? Six. Okay. And so, so you really are um, a pretty light, scrappy team. Uh, and, and it's then these 185 um, freelancers. Do you manage the freelancers as well? Or are they really managed by your clients? So it, from a, an HR and admin standpoint and trying to improve their soft skills, their development skills, we do a lot of management there. So we have a full management staff on the ground in Cebu City for that purpose to kind of help with all of the employment issues. So we actually fully employ all 185 people in Cebu. Hmm. So we directly employ them and we have that management there to help with any employment issues our HMO plans, typical daily operational items, as well as trying to increase their soft skills, their, their critical thinking, advance their development skills, offer some training in that regard. So that's what our management staff really has a, a real hands-on approach when it comes to those employees. But as far as their daily directional work, that comes directly from the client. It's interesting. What's your turnover rate like with the staff? Is it too early to tell what your turnover like? Do you know what the lifespan of one of these clients is, or not clients, but your um, the tech people are going to be? Yeah. So our our churn rate is very low right now. So we started officially. The company was incorporated in the Philippines in July of 2018. So we're coming up on two years, pretty close, and we're currently at about 87 percent retention rate. Most of that is due to there was a that 
the ones that have turned is a lack of culture fit generally, or an inability to, to really speak, to speak conversational English. So there's a difference between obviously being able to speak English and having the critical thinking abilities that go along with fully knowing and understanding the English language. Uh, So that's been our our biggest challenge with assessing. We do, uh, we put a, a lot of onus from our side on properly assessing the employees as they come in the door to make sure they're a culture fit and that they have the skills from more so a soft skill standpoint that they will succeed with our clients. And every now and then it, we have a system break, someone gets through the cracks and it's just on us to keep improving and getting better with that. And I think we have, um, but so far we our, our retention has been great with our employees and we do a lot to focus on that. You know, we pay, uh, around 20% more than market average over there. We offer massages in the office. We offer catered meals, drinks, snacks. So we've tried to bring more of an American culture over there to their outsourcing, their typical outsourcing culture, which isn't always so great. We provide top equipment, everything we can do, we can do to foster an environment of growth and success. That's cool. Some of that's actually starting to become, um, pretty normal over there now as well. From my understanding is a lot of the, the companies that are doing business over in the Philippines have brought a lot of that culture over there that it's starting to kind of eke in. I remember I had a client in the Philippines 10 years ago and I told him to buy all of his employees, Herman Miller, Aaron chairs and kind of looked at me and he's like, all right, I'm doing it. And he brought in these amazing chairs and it blew everybody's minds. And he's just like, if I take care of my people, they're never going to leave. Well, and that's what you mentioned when you were kind of speaking about your, your, uh, experience with the Philippines, the loyalty is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It, it, all they, they're looking for is to be treated well. There, there has been a previously bad culture. And as you noted, it's really getting better. But in the past, it was call center mentality where it's, you're going to be in a very small cubicle. You don't matter. You're very replaceable. We'll just move on to the next one. And that's changing. And I'm proud to say that we're a part of helping that change. Uh, but the, the loyalty is unbelievable if you just treat them well, which is great. I don't remember if it's a president or prime minister over there, but there was some political instability there about a year or so ago. Is how is that? No, uh, I'd say it's probably pretty ongoing. Uh, so they they do have a very controversial president, and it's it doesn't affect us as much because we're on a different island. So we right. are, we're in Cebu City, so we don't get as much of the fallout from Manila, where their president's located and their capital is. So we haven't seen a lot from that. It, until recently. So there's a lot of government mandates around the quarantines with COVID-19, uh, including, uh, I think recently I got a picture of tanks rolling through the streets near our offices. Jeez. So that's always interesting the way that they, uh, it's a little bit differing mentality in the way they enforce their laws. Uh, but uh, otherwise we haven't had a lot of impact with it. They're pretty good with businesses over there. Well, yeah, I spoke to the um, the Young Presidents Organization, the YPO and the EO chapter over there. That was why I was there. And one of the members mentioned that taxes are kind of negotiable. Are you a, a Philippines-based company or are you a U.S.-based company or both? So the technical structure of our company is that we're both. So we have a U.S. LLC that technically has a service agreement with a Filipino corporation that's owned by the same people on both sides. So we can kind of control the way that the service prices work both sides so we can control our vendor cost but technically we're two separate entities and then how do you deal with the taxation issue over there is that is it negotiable do you know what i'm talking about like is there they what what i was explained was that it's almost a series of systematic bribes that are very above board that are just the way things are done and this the filipino ceo turned to me goes oh in america you call it lobbying here we call it bribery yeah 
that, that's a very good way to put it. So there, it's getting a little bit more stable from what we can expect on the taxes. It's pretty, pretty leveled out now that we pretty much know what's going to happen, but there is still that element to their government. Mm -hmm. So we run across that on certain things or certain forms that have to get through, or they have different economic groups such as PESA, which is the group that you go to, to avoid that some different exclusions with that. So there's still some things where they kind of want their cut of certain, certain items to file certain forms or to be part of certain inclusionary groups. But other, other, it's not too big of a part of our, our daily operations to worry about that though. But you still have to, <clears throat> do you still have to play along with those lines or do you try to, to go, no, we just don't do it that way. Like how do you, how do you deal with that? So our typical stance is that we kind of, we just try to get along. Yeah. You know, it's That's difficult with us being halfway around the world that if something were to affect our daily operations to quickly rectify it, uh, it's, it's not always the easiest to jump on a plane and you've got 35 to 40 hours of travel. So send, with that no, being known, it's kind of just a strategy just to get along. Yep. It seems to be the way it has to happen. You can't, you can't enforce our way of business in a different culture. You have to kind of understand their culture and try to work within it as best as possible. Yep. And that's been one of the, the biggest challenges, as I kind of alluded to, this was kind of created by an accident. So one of our, uh, we have two co-founders. One of our co-founders actually runs another pretty successful software company. And he was having trouble finding and locating talent locally. And our other co-founder who I've worked with on and off for 10 years now, and is our current CEO, has had a long history with employing Filipino developers for different software projects. So it all was a perfect storm of paths crossing and needs being met at the right time. So our, our one co-founder, they're both named Matt to make it even more confusing. <laughs> Matt needed more local development help, realized that the other Matt had an access to a pipeline in the Philippines and kind of wanted access to that. When then word kind of spread around town, they're both pretty well known in this industry, in this area. And a lot of other people were lining up asking if they could get some help too. So it's kind of one of those things in business, you often listen for an echo and you kind of know that's where you need to focus your attention. They quickly figured out there was a very large echo and that's kind of how we were born. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was speaking to a CEO in India and he said, North Americans are so crazy. He said, you try to invent products and then spend all your time marketing them to people who haven't even realized they have a need. He said, in India, we just find out what the need is and we sell to it because we've got a billion three people that need stuff. We just sell them the stuff they need. So it sounds like that's what you did as well. You, you listen to that echo and then you're selling into it. Yep. It's great. And it's great advice too. There's, there's no one that uh, can tell you where to go more than the people that are telling you what they need. Right. And my dad always said that the answer is yes. What are you buying? <laughs> but exactly. Yes, I sell it. Yep. Um, why did you join FullScale? What was it that attracted you to the organization? Yeah, so as you kind of mentioned in the, uh, the ever generous introduction, I came, my previous role was in a top 10 pharmaceutical company. Absolutely loved it. I kind of had an ability to get some structure, learn how really large companies operate, uh, which also made me really resent how large companies operate. So it was a chance to fully impart my ideas, see them immediately put into effect and kind of feel that sense of winning, that sense of change over an organization to see where my imprint really was on it. 
that was the kind of the whole catalyst for making the switch. Uh, it, it was a new opportunity. It was something where I, I was just burnt out about having my ideas go through 15 levels of management only to have the management turn over and we have to start again. It just kind of killed my whole creative spirit from that standpoint. So the opportunity to kind of make my own rules and see them immediately put into effect was very, very appealing to me. Yeah, it's interesting. You're not the first person I've seen go through that either. It's really frustrating for me watching people that are um, so smart, technically, operationally, and and even are very entrepreneurial and they don't even necessarily recognize it, work within these big corporate hierarchies and bureaucracies to, to just kind of, they feel like drones at the end of the day. And I've never, I've never had to work in one. I was in one for about six months when one of the companies I was president of was acquired and all of a sudden I was inside of a 900 person company. So I can't even imagine being in, you know, a nine, 9,000 or 90,000 person company, but, um, it's really interesting to see them, them kind of almost die on the vine like that. What was the transition like for you? Where did you stumble coming from the big pharma into the entrepreneurial organizations? What did you have to relearn or do differently? Yeah, so the the stumble was actually the the exact same thing that was the catalyst for leaving. It was the freedom. Uh, you have to really narrow your scope and be laser focused on what you want to attack. I think everybody, you know, I've listened to the podcast and I hear a recurring theme there is that everyone wants to, everyone wants to take on too much. And of course, I'm guilty of that too. So having the freedom to actually take it on though, and no one telling you no, is then also the biggest challenge that I had. I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted. I wanted to do it all. And there's just not enough time in the day to do it all and do it all well. So it's mm -hmm. really getting a, your priority straight, figuring out what you can and what you can't delegate where that makes the biggest impact or on the organization and where I can really make my biggest impact on a daily basis to make sure that my priorities are focused properly. So how do, how do you specifically walk us through how you prioritize things? How do you decide what to work on, what not to, what to do now, what to delay, et cetera? Yep. So the, the typical rule that I follow is you obviously want to do everything better. You, you want to do one of three things. You want to do your, whatever your core competency, you want to do it better, faster, or cheaper than your competition. So I look at ways that I can have an impact on my organization that other people in our organization cannot. So I know I'm the only one capable of that specific item. I also try to be very conscious of, can I pay somebody within our organization or someone that we're already paying to do this for me and it be more cost effective? So it may take them twice as long, but if they're making a third of what my time costs, it is now more cost effective for them to have that kind of delegated role. So I try to do an ROI kind of cost analysis on the different items that we have at play. And then also some things I just know that they have to come through me eventually. So I can kind of break them down and delegate parts of it. Like, can you get me to a rough draft? I'll put my final touches on it and we move forward. So it's just doing a complete analysis from a cost standpoint and an efficiency standpoint of where my time is best spent. Yeah, I love that whole looking at, at the effective hourly rate. And I was talking to a CEO that I coached this morning and I said, you know, it needs to get done, but not by you. You know, exactly. there's, there is that, that opportunity to delegate everything except genius. So what, what do you focus on day to day right now? So my biggest day to day now is a little bit different. Obviously we kind of alluded to the COVID-19 items that are going on right now. So a lot of my day to day operational issues deal with the, ECQ, which is the extended quarantine in the Philippines, as well as the quarantine in the United States. So uh, I mean, I think everybody was, for the most part, pretty affected by the initial blow of the quarantine. So it's figuring out a way to 
keep operations moving, make sure we have enough cash to see where we can get in the future, running a number of different forecasts to say what happens if our revenue halves, if it drops by 75%, what if we go down to zero, how long can we kind of currently sustain our operations? A lot of planning from that regard, as well as making sure that we have 185 people on the other side of the world that are safe and, uh, and have the items that they need to properly do their job. So that the biggest difficulty there is they have literally closed borders. So it'd be like if you're in the United States and you can't cross the state line to a different, a different state and we work in all different states. So there's a ton of different borders that we can't cross where we need to get equipment to different people, different certifications filed with the government to make sure that we're classified as essential. So that has eaten up a ton of my current time I would say outside of these special circumstances, a lot of the things that I'm really focusing on is putting us in front of the proper venture capitalists or lenders to make sure that we can really facilitate the growth that we would like to in the future. It's also making sure that we have a strong company culture. Uh, obviously, that's a little bit difficult when you are on uh, exact different time time zones. They are basically, their AM is RPM and it's just completely flipped 12 to 13 hours making sure that our voice isn't lost through different Zoom communication tools or Slack communication tools, making sure that our voice is truly heard. Uh, and I know you've talked about this in the past. One of the ways that we do a lot of that is through video updates. It's a very good way to make sure that our video or our, our message isn't lost. And that video really helps us communicate that and make sure that that culture is strong. Uh, ultimately, I think any organization to create a culture of winning, your employees need to be invested in whether they're winning or losing on a daily basis. And there's a lot that we do around that, making sure that they feel like they're winning on both a personal career development standpoint and winning for their client. Great. It's funny. I was thinking about a, a, a virtual EA that I had about 10 years ago and she was based in Cebu and she sent me a happy birthday video of her playing guitar and singing to me. It was really cute. Yeah. Um, so just to timestamp this, because you mentioned the COVID-19, just to kind of timestamp, we're um, recording this right now on May 14th, um, 2020. So we're right in the midst of the U.S. selectively state by state starting to open things up a little bit. What, what has happened in COVID-19 in the Philippines? You mentioned that the states are locking up where you can't transport across state lines within the Philippines. Is that where lobbying comes in to help out or is it pretty firmly locked down? And what else has happened that maybe they're doing differently or better over there or that you have to juggle around? Yeah, so as far as what they're doing differently or better, they, uh, they have the ability to completely shut down everything. They, that no one is allowed out of their home. It's, uh, if you're going to the grocery store, based on your license plate, whether you're an odd or even, depends on the day you're allowed to be out of your house to go to the grocery store. Uh, they have a little bit more ability to fully control the movement and the freedom of the people. So it makes it a little bit easier in that standpoint for them to do an actual lockdown. <laughs> However, that being said, the one thing that they realize is that American dollars are extremely important to their economy that it is what it is. It's a very important piece of revenue coming in for them. It's very important. So they, we're allowed to be deemed essential from that standpoint. All BPOs that deal with American companies can kind of work around that. So like you kind of mentioned the lobbying, they kind of know what's important to make sure that they don't fully shut down. So we have some ability to get around that. It's just difficult remotely trying to get the proper paperwork in place and in the hands of whoever may need it that particular day. 
That's really interesting. It's super interesting that um, that they're allowing the U.S. dollar companies, any of the back back office processing companies, to to operate over there. It makes sense that they're trying to keep the economy going as best as possible and then control it. You mentioned delegating. Um, how do you delegate? Do you have a process or a way that you delegate, or a, a you know methodology to make sure that what you delegate gets done properly? Yeah. So I I mean I'm a big fan of one on one meetings uh, and. As you've alluded to that the uh, the notion that meetings are no good I I think is kind of an old school notion or it's looking at not having an understanding of truly what a meeting should accomplish so I have a lot of working meetings where at the end we better have action items there better be notes we better break with a very clear understanding of who is doing what why and when it needs to be communicated again so we typically do uh, a quick stand-up scrum where everyone goes around and says here's what i did yesterday here's what i'm doing today here's any roadblocks that i might have and that's kind of how we handle our team communication and then i'm a big fan of working one-on-one meetings with uh, anyone that has items that i have delegated that i need updated on and we have to be very clear about where in the process i need to be updated where i might need to insert myself so it's a lot of communication i think uh, communication obviously is key to everything you do without communication, uh, you're not going to get too far. So anything that I have to delegate, it's something that I know I either don't have the time for it and someone else has a skill set to at least get it started or possibly complete it. From that standpoint, then we'll set the proper communication path about how we make sure we get to our end goal. Yeah, that's perfect. And I think you're handling it quite well. I, the one thing that has always driven me crazy about meetings, it's, it's actually the reason I wrote the book, Meetings Suck, was people kept complaining about meetings without realizing most people have never been trained on how to run meetings and almost no one has ever been trained on how to attend them and participate in them and and actually work within a meeting. So I wrote the book. So 30% of it is teaching people how to run meetings. 30% is teaching them how to show up and participate as an attendee. And then 30% is all the right meetings to run your company. But you're right. It's, we can't get away from meetings. We actually need them to run highly um, functional companies and to run high growth companies. We just have to run them better. So you mentioned one-on-one meetings. I'm a huge fan of one-on-one meetings. How do you structure your one-on-ones with one of your direct reports? Can you walk us through how that agenda might look? Yeah, so it'll typically be a 30-minute meeting where I ask what I can do to help them do their job better. I like it to be an open conversation, and that is literally the structure of it. We kick off saying, what can I help you do to make sure that you're doing your job as well as you can and effectively as you can? What do you need from me? Uh, I always want to kind of be an empathetic voice that I look if you've got a lot on your table I just need communication what can we do to get that off your plate and onto someone else's where are you struggling what's holding you down uh there are times where we've really been in a funk and I've literally walked into a meeting and said tell me what you hate about your job right now and how can we fix that it's not un it's not it's not the worst thing in the world or the end of the world for you to walk in and be like man I hate this part of my job right now but what can we do to actively fix it yep well, and what you're pointing out is what I always call is kind of the flipped up upside down org chart where the, the, the role of the leader is to support their team in three ways, direction to make sure they're working on the right stuff, the skill development, as you're pointing out, and then the emotional support, which is sometimes removing obstacles and just being there to lend an ear and, and cheering them on at times too. So you've, you've actually got that part, um, you're dialing in nicely. What are you guys looking at in terms of your growth now? Because you're two, almost two years in, as you mentioned. So how are you forecasting your growth? How are you planning your growth? How do you approach that aspect of building a business? Yeah, so it's, uh, like I said, we're unique and 
and restrained in the in regards to we have to have more people it's an increase in headcount to support our growth we just have to grow as an organization to be able to grow our sales so it's putting a huge emphasis on future recruiting plans so we currently recruit almost strictly by referrals it's insane we have one recruiter we went from zero well about five employees a year and a half ago to 185 in a year and a half and i i mean spent very nominal amount of money on any job ads. It's all through referrals from our current employees. So from a forecasting standpoint, aggressively given proper funding, that's the, I guess the financial side of me that I want to have some disclosures. We could pretty easily, and we have the client and the sales funnel to support it, double our head count within a year and triple our headcount within about 18 months. And what do you need in terms of the funding for that? Is it because you have to bring these people on and train them and onboard them so there's a lag in terms of revenue or what, what's the funding for? Yeah, so, so generally there is obviously to hire anyone, we do full background checks, assessments that cost a little bit of money and then you have an equipment cost. So they are senior developers which require very specific equipment that's a little bit more expensive than your standard just laptop that any admin function might need. So we have specific requirements. That capital can get a little bit uh, expensive. It is difficult to procure internationally in a little more underdeveloped countries. So that's always one of our bigger challenges. And then additionally, this is still something that we're currently working out. We're very much in the planning process, but as I kind of alluded to earlier, the capital cost for office space mm. is insanely expensive. So typically for a lease, you put three months advance rent plus a three month security deposit. So you have six months of rent up front, uh, as well as a construction bond. And then you have to fully build out the space if you can find it. So that's been one of our biggest restrictions of moving forward in the past and was going to require the most amount of, of capital up front to really make our growth uh, as to really meet our growth plan on what we had hoped. So with the current state, however, though, we are reevaluating whether all of the office space is needed. Yeah. If we can get by with a limited office staff. What, um, what is your, your cash flow break even on a new hire? Is it about three to six months, three to four months? It depends. Uh, we have a lot of our hires. It, so it depends. There's, there's two different types of new hires. We have new hires that are going directly onto a revenue generating client. So mm -hmm. we have insane current client growth. Uh, last time the numbers were ran, which was the end of April, our, our current clients grow on average of the ones that grow about 176%. So our current clients are often asking us to increase the size of their teams, which might mean we have to literally, it's they're placing an order. We have to go out, recruit, assess, and fill the order. So they come directly into a revenue generating product. They're a positive ROI from month one. Okay. Now we do have to, and this is probably the trickiest part of our business. Oh, I guess you've we, got some management of those people though too, don't you? Management and recruiting. Yep, we do. So, but the, uh, the trickiest part of our business is managing essentially how much inventory we have for sale at all times. 
Right. So okay. how many people are we paying to sit around and do nothing mm. just so we have the ability to offer our clients the ability to grow rapidly? Right. Uh, so that's, that's by far the biggest managing our utilization rate is easily the most tricky part because you, then you get into, well, how many .NET people do you need on the bench? How many front end people do you need on the bench? How many mobile developers do you need on the bench? There's so many different roles. If I had five of them all are, are, our bench cost of the people that we were paying to sit around and do nothing would be insanely high and they would go stir crazy pretty quickly. Uh, they, these are experts in their field. They want to be out doing what they're good at, not sitting around and getting paid, uh, which is great for us, but that is, that's tricky. Uh, so the ROI on those people, it just depends if we can find very expert borderline genius level talent, we will hire them whether there is a plan in place for a client or not. Uh, just because those people are unicorns and they're difficult to find and hire. So it, it very much varies depending on the strategy of the hire. Yeah, it makes sense. And your clients who are hiring, you probably want these people to start within 30 days too, don't they? Yes. Yeah, they're, not, wait, they're not looking for a 90-day startup of these. Yep. And that's a, a very cultural thing. Like we have a two-week notice here typically a month. Uh, they're often in... 30-day to 60-day notice requirements, and they can even be in bonded contracts that have to be bought out financially. Wow. So a little more, a little more complicated than you might have started when you were starting the company too, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, last couple of questions. If, if you think about your skills on the, the COO side, what is it you're working on today to grow your skill set? So my skill set that needs growth is my communication. So I try to do a good job requesting communication from everyone else. And often I get bogged down by uh, just every day. So my, my work days often can be 12, 14, 16 hours. So typically when we stop working here, everyone in the Philippines is just getting to work. So yep. if I'm not careful, uh, my, my communication can get lost. And then also <laughs> making sure that I don't burn myself out is the, the trickiest part because uh, especially now that everyone's working from home, I'm just always on. Uh, and I notice the quality of my work as I do that can start to depreciate a little bit. And I'll be yep. the first one. To admit that sometimes I'm very good at spending a whole lot of plates, but not being really great at any of them at the current moment. So it's making sure that I always have to be constantly working and striving to make sure that I'm effectively using my time and putting a full focus on the items that I am choosing to use my time on. Yeah, I think we definitely get some diminishing returns after we work past a certain point in the day. So um, final question before I just do our, my wrap question, but the final one is, what do you think it was the founders saw in you? Why would they hire a big corporate, big pharma guy into a small entrepreneurial startup? What did they see and, um, and did they think that it was any risk at all? So I have a long history with one of our CEO and one of our co-founders. We've worked together on and off for 10 years and we are the perfect Perfect. Uh, the cliche match of the CEO that has a million ideas. And uh, he, the thing that he, we like to say is that he is the person that will jump off the cliff trying to fly. And I will jump off after him with a parachute and build wings to make sure he doesn't crash. Yep. So we, we work very well. Uh, it, it is a, just a natural click we've had ever since the start. So after we had kind of taken some time apart and I had a lot of the, the uh, more structured 
big company feel. It was something that uh, he didn't have a lot of experience with. He's very much an entrepreneurial mind. And he thought that I would be the perfect fit to come in and kind of put some processes, some structure, put a box around what he was trying to accomplish and turn his ideas from an idea into an executable plan. Uh, so yeah, of course there was, uh, there, there was a ton of things that I didn't know. I had no experience with international law, uh, international construction, uh, a lot of the international aspects to it. I didn't have, uh, any, any relevant experience. So it was definitely them taking a chance on me. And I think what they saw in me is the, the drive and the want to learn to make sure that I could accomplish anything. One of the things that I value highest in our organization is learning agility. I think smart people learn how to get things done. And I think they saw the ability in me to, to get things done and knew that I would work as hard as I could and as hard as it required to make sure that all that stuff was done properly. Yeah. And like you mentioned, the, the trust and the culture fit was already there. They knew that because of the years of experience. I think that's where so many CEOs make the wrong decision is they hire someone based on skill, but without truly even understanding the cultural fit of the person, the cultural norms. When I was the second in command at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I had been, the, the CEO was my, the best man at my wedding two months before I even joined him at his company. So we knew each other for years before I even decided to join him to help build it. So there was already, it's very similar to you. We already knew each other so well. All right, Daryl, if we were to go back to the 22 year old self, you're kind of graduating college, getting ready to start out in your career. What word of advice would you give yourself back then that you, you know, now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known a lot earlier? You don't know everything. <laughs> I think it's very easy for everyone to come out of like I'm fresh out of college. Uh, I would like to consider myself uh, pretty intelligent and I just thought I knew absolutely everything and I absolutely did not had no life experience. So uh, listen to people, uh, ne never be the smartest person in a room. Always look for a room that has smarter people and you listen to that experience. It's invaluable. Uh, Take the advice. Don't think that you know everything. That would be the biggest advice I'd have for myself. That's amazing. Thank you. This is why one of the reasons why I love doing these interviews for this podcast is I love I learn every time I do one. So Daryl Blackburn, I really, really appreciate the time and you sharing everything you guys have done at full scale. Thanks for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Cameron. This has been great. And uh, just thank you for all that you do. Uh, we, it's nice to, uh, have a voice like yours when we're in those low moments to kind of go back and reflect upon and know that everybody's been there. So we appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for, for joining us. Appreciate it. You've been listening to second in command brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content for more best practices from industry leading COOs visit COOalliance.com.